he relied on God and took him at his word. Did God uh, come through, so to speak? Was God there for David when David trusted him? If he was, then I hope that encourages us to do the same thing, the same thing that David did, to trust God. If we can see what God has done in others, maybe we'll trust that he can do the same thing for us. And I want to look at Psalm 34 in order to, in order to address this question and in order to look at some experiences of David. So if you'll turn to Psalm 34, that's where we're going to be studying this evening. You see, I think this is a very practical question. In, in a sense, this affects every day that we live, doesn't it? Every day we have to, whether or not we think about it this way, every day we have to decide whether or not we're going to trust God. Am I going to trust God when I'm making this decision? Am I going to trust God when I'm prioritizing my day? Or when I'm thinking long-term? When I'm thinking about what I want to do with my life? Where I want to go in the future? As we're nearing the end of a year, a lot of times people take this as an opportunity to make resolutions for the next year and to set goals for themselves. Well, am I trusting God when I'm making goals? Am I trusting him for the resources I'll need to pursue these goals? Or am I giving in to worry and doubt? Or am I relying on ungodly methods to pursue what I think I want? So this is a very practical question, and I think we can all see that when we stop and think about it for a minute. And so I really think it matters when we look at what David experienced as he tried to trust God. Well, here, here are a few things that he tells us after he tried to trust God. I'm just, I'm just going to pull out a few verses as a, as a preview of where we're going. David says things like this. He says, I sought the Lord, and he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. He says, this poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. David says, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. So obviously, David found God to be trustworthy, to be worthy of his trust. And so let's look at the details of David's experience Let's start by just looking at Psalm, uh, Psalm 34, verses 1 through 3. We're going to break this up into a few sections here. So in verses 1 through 3, we see praise. We see praise to God. We see that God is the right recipient of praise. David says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make her boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear thereof and be glad. O magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. You see, God is the right recipient of our praise. He's worthy of our praise because he's a God who can be trusted. And when we trust him, we find out how worthy he is. And David was having that experience. And, and David is saying, look, I have found God to be so trustworthy that I'm going to bless him at all times. I'm not just going to wait until I can see the light at the end of the tunnel or when I feel better. I'm going to trust God at I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bless God at all times. God is that trustworthy. He's that worthy of our praise. And, and notice that David is finding God to be the one that ought to be magnified and not himself. I mean, when we find ourselves in a difficult situation and where we come to a point where we need to trust in something, well, what do we trust in? The object of our trust becomes the object of our magnification, so to speak. I mean, the thing that we're trusting is the thing that people are seeing us trust. It's the thing that is becoming big in our lives. So what is, what is your life enlarging? Well, David's life was enlarging God. It was magnifying God. God. David was boasting in the God that he was trusting. 
The God that he was trusting at all times, the God that he was therefore blessing at all times. Who are you magnifying with your life? Who are you trusting? Who are you focusing attention on with the way that you live? Now, for one thing, we can't, we ought not anyway, focus attention on ourselves. We ought not magnify ourselves. We, not, we ought not praise and exalt ourselves. Well, why is that? I mean, you might say, well, I've really pulled myself up by my own bootstraps. I've been in difficult situations, and I got myself out of them. So maybe you think, well, you know, I'm a, I did a pretty good job, and I deserve some of the praise for that. But that may be the case. You may have worked really hard. You may have done some good things in your life, but where did you get the strength to do that? And, and when it comes to God's perspective on our lives, how do the best accomplishments we can boast of measure up to him? What is God's perspective on the best things that we can produce? You see, we can't boast in ourselves. We have nothing to magnify when we're trying to enlarge ourselves or our own goodness or make ourselves out to be more righteous than we really are. Uh, I mean, the Bible says uh, a lot about this, actually. This is a focal point of Scripture, not magnifying ourselves, but instead magnifying God. One of our tendencies especially as Christians, as professing Christians, uh, we might know better than to actually say the things I was just saying and say, oh, well, I'm a good person and I pulled myself up on my own bootstraps, you know, so I deserve a lot of praise for that. We might know better than to say that. But we might pride ourselves in our obedience, right? We might say, well, you know, I'm actually a really good Christian. <laughs> I, I was a really good Christian this week, and, and, and uh, you know, I really hope people noticed because I hope people think I'm a good person. Well, this, is a, this has been a long-standing problem with religious people. Religion, when directed towards God, is good, but if religion becomes an object in itself, it can become poisonous. I mean, Paul talked about this in Romans 2.23. He says, he asks a question, actually, Thou that makest thy boast of the law through breaking the law, dishonorest thou God? He's reminding us of the fact that if, our, if we're trying to boast in our ability to keep the law and, and boast in our obedience, we don't really have any ground to stand on. He's reminding us that you have broken the very law you're boasting in. So don't, don't magnify your own obedience as if it's something praiseworthy in itself, as if it was generated by yourself. This is not something we can boast in. David knew that. David knew he was to magnify God instead of his obedience to the law. We can't boast in good works. That's how God designed the entire work of salvation, isn't it? In Ephesians chapter 2. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, it says, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. God is very intentional about this. He has constructed the universe in such a way that it does not give us room to boast in ourselves. He has intervened in our lives in such a way that we cannot boast in ourselves. It is all by his grace. Our obedience is a fruit of love, if it's true obedience. And where did that love come from? We love God because he first loved us. We are saved by grace. We have received this through faith. It is a gift. We do not boast in ourselves. We cannot. It is not of our works. So we ought to magnify God and not ourselves. We ought not trust in ourselves. We ought to be trusting in God, the God who saves us by his grace. 
I mean, I'm, I'm dwelling on this point here at the beginning on purpose, because if we, if we don't get the right orientation for our thoughts, then a lot of this won't make sense. If we're not intentional about trying to magnify God, focus attention on him and on what he has done rather than, our, on our, rather than on ourselves and what we have done, we'll find it harder to trust him. We'll find it harder to trust in something outside of ourselves that we aren't in control of and that won't bring praise and attention to ourselves. But if we're fixated on God and we see that he is the right recipient of praise, he ought to be enlarged by our lives, it'll be easier to trust in him. It'll, be, it'll go right along with that mindset. So I'm, I hope that we can focus on this here at the beginning of Psalm 34 in order to orient ourselves in such a way that we, we can receive the rest of this psalm. What are some things we tend to boast in instead of God? In Jeremiah chapter 9, he says, uh, in chapter 9, verse 23, Thus saith the Lord, Let not the wise man glory or boast in his wisdom, neither let the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches. You see, whatever we have a lot of, we tend to boast about. We tend to glory, and we tend to point that out and focus attention on the things that we consider our strengths. But God says, whatever that strength you have may be, don't focus on that. Don't glory in that. Don't magnify that aspect of your own life. He says, instead, let him that glorieth glory in this, that he understandeth and knoweth me, that I am the Lord, which exercise love and kindness, judgment and righteousness in this earth, for in these things I delight, saith the Lord. So David says, I will bless the Lord at all times. He says, my soul shall make her boast in the Lord. David was rejoicing in his knowledge of God and in the fact that God was trustworthy. He was boasting. It's kind of a funny way he's saying it here. He was boasting in a way that made the humble glad. Is that the way we boast? Do we boast in a way that makes the humble rejoice? Sometimes we think of boasting as an act of pride. But if we're boasting in God, and if we're enlarging him, and if we're magnifying him, it's an act of humility. It makes the humble glad. So magnify the Lord with me, David says, and let us exalt his name together. I hope that's what we can do together as Christians, that we can gather together in this purpose, that we can jointly seek to magnify God. God set up his church. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He has ordained that we gather ourselves together as a called out assembly of worshipers for the purpose of magnifying God, for the purpose of rejoicing in the God who has saved us. So may this be our intention, that we bless the Lord at all times, as we trust in him at all times, that we might be always magnifying him, enlarging him through our lives in the sight of the onlooking world. So, This first portion is important. It's full of praise towards God. He is the right recipient of this praise, this trustworthy God that David trusted in. Then we read in verses 4 through 7 about God's protection. We're learning here that God is a real refuge. He says, I sought the Lord, and he heard me, and delivered me from all my fears. They looked unto him and were lightened, and their faces were not ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encampeth round about them that fear him, 
and delivereth them. God is a real refuge. Look at verse 4. David says that he sought the Lord and he delivered him from all his fear. Now, tradition tells us, and it might be at the uh, little notes at the top of your psalm in your, in your Bible, that David wrote this psalm after he was delivered from Abimelech, or Achish, depending on where you read it in the Old Testament accounts. He went by both names. He was a Philistine king, and this was when David was fleeing from Saul, and he went to the land of Philip, the Philistines, and when he sought refuge with this king, he realized that they, they recognized him. They recognized, oh, this is David, the one they used to sing songs about in Israel, the one who killed his ten thousands compared to Saul's thousands, the one who killed our champion, Goliath. David didn't really count on this sort of reception. And so he suddenly was terrified for his life. And how did he handle it? Well, apparently he called out to God for help. And it, it actually, his deliverance came in a rather unexpected form. David actually pretended to be crazy. He started drooling and groveling and scratching at the gates of the city. And the king was scared of him, I suppose. I've heard it said that they used to think that... Um, Insanity was contagious back then. (laughs) So they didn't want a crazy man in their midst, and so they drove David away. And he escaped with his life. So this was a strange form of deliverance, perhaps, but David did escape with his life from the hand of his enemy. Now, David perhaps was not exercising the best judgment when he sought refuge in the land of the Philistines, but um, nevertheless, God got him out of that situation, and David is praising God for it. God delivered him from his fears. You see, my point is, David is boasting in God based upon his own experience with God. Now, whether you're a new Christian or a long-time Christian, I know one of you was saying you've been here for 18 years now, so that's 18 years of trying to trust God, I hope. I'm sure we can all look back on our own experience, on our own personal experience with God, and remember times that he has delivered us from our fears when we seek him. David says, I sought the Lord and he delivered me from all my fears. I hope we can remember that and and cherish that and hope that he will yet do so again. Now, David says that when we look to him, so first he says in verse 4, that's a very personal thing, I sought the Lord. And then he says in verse 5, they looked unto him in a more general sense. They looked unto him and were lightened and their faces were not ashamed. You see, this applies to us all. In a general sense, when we look to God, we will find light. Look at, compare this with uh, Psalm 36, 9, just a, maybe a, in, on the same opening, perhaps, or a page over. Psalm 36, 9, David exclaims, For with thee is the fountain of life. In thy light shall we see light. In the light of God we see light. God is the source of light in this world. Without God, we have nothing but darkness. And the point David is emphasizing here is when we look for light in God, we will find it. The scripture is full of this metaphor, light and darkness. And in so many places, the scripture warns us against looking for light in the wrong places. It warns us when we look for light apart from God, we will not find it. We will only find confusion and fog. We'll find the darkness that we're trying to escape. We'll only entangle ourselves in it more if we're not seeking it in God. Jesus echoes this statement and this sentiment very clearly in John 8. John 8, 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. 
Now look at how both of these verses are tying together the light of God and life. You see, as we look at this psalm, I think we'll find, I hope we'll find, that trusting in God is good. That was the first question we asked, wasn't it? Is it good to trust in God? And I think it's becoming abundantly clear based on David's experience, and I hope as we go through David's experience, your own experiences will start resonating with his, and we'll realize, we'll be reaffirmed, we'll be reassured that it is good to trust God, that when we seek God, we find life, we find light, we find these things that are not found elsewhere. Jesus says he is the light of the world, and when we follow him, we will not walk in darkness. We'll have the light of life. This is a reassuring statement. This is a reassuring statement. This is a solid foundation. This is something we can build our lives on in the midst of a chaotic, a seemingly chaotic world. It, it looks so crazy out there, and it seems like there's nothing sure about life sometimes. But Jesus says, I am the light of this world. I give you direction. I give you insight into reality. I tell you how the world really works. I tell you what's really going on. I tell you what life is all about. We don't find answers to those questions anywhere but in Jesus. Or at least we don't find the right answers. We have a lot of people offering answers to these big questions about life and existence. But Jesus came here from God, as God, in, the, in person, to tell us what life is really about. To tell us what reality is really is. He is the light. He gives us the understanding we need. And David says we'll find that light when we look for it in God. He says this poor man cried. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. Trouble, poverty, poverty of spirit, poverty of tangible resources. These, these are very familiar things. We live in a world that's full of trouble, full of trouble. Our lives are all touched by trouble of some sort, whether it's children in the ER or uh, marriages that are on the rocks and difficult or just various. I mean, I could go on and on listing all sorts of trouble that we face, don't we? But David says that even in our poverty, we can cry out to the Lord and he'll hear us. He'll save us out of all of our trouble. Isn't that what Jesus told us he would do? He says, in the world you shall have tribulation. You will have trouble. Expect it. Don't be surprised by it. Don't be disheartened by it. Because in me, he says, you, you will have peace. He says, I have overcome the world. He reassures us, be not afraid. I have overcome the world. So God will deliver us from our trouble, even when we cry out to him in the midst of our poverty. Again, David says this in a very personal way. And then again, he goes back and he expands to a more general statement. The angel of the Lord encampeth round about them that fear him and delivereth them. So we find ourselves surrounded when we cry out to God for help, even as we feel surrounded by fear or trouble or, or pain. Now, God is saying that when we fear God, we will be delivered from our fears. It's two obviously very different uses of the word fear. You see, God everywhere in Scripture encourages us to fear him. And if you look at how he's using that phrase, the fear of the Lord, you realize, you realize that this is almost synonymous with two different things. 
love and obedience. Loving God is fearing God. Obeying God is fearing God. These are almost three synonymous phrases. And of course, the loving God and the obeying God are also synonymous because Jesus says, if you'll love me, you'll keep my commandments. So this is the basic essence of what God is talking about. He's saying, look, if you fear me, if you seek me, if you fix your love on me and seek to obey me through faith, you'll be delivered from all other fears. God says, make me your fear and you won't need to fear anything else. In fact, it's interesting the way God confronts us about our fears. In, in Isaiah 51, verse 12, he says, I, even I am he that comforteth you. Who art thou that thou shouldest be afraid of a man that shall die? And, then of, and of the son of man which shall be made as grass. And forgettest the Lord thy maker that has stretched forth the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth. And is feared continually every day because of the fear of the oppressor, as if he were ready to destroy. Where is the fury of the oppressor, God asks. He's basically saying, who do you think you are to be afraid of a man when I'm the one who comforts you? I've got you surrounded as you walk in my fear. David, finds, David has found this out from experience, and, and I ask you, have you found this to be the truth? Have you ever seen God surround you as you Make him the object of your fear, the object of your respect and devotion, the, the one you seek to obey. God says that his angel, his presence will encamp round about you. We have no business being afraid of people if God is our fear. God says he'll protect us. He's the one who created the heavens and the earth. So David reassures us about that. So we see that God is the rightful recipient of praise. God is our protection. He is a real refuge for us. God is our source of provision. In verses 8 through 10, he says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man that trusteth in him. Oh, fear the Lord, ye his saints, for there is no want to them that fear him. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they that seek the Lord shall not want any good thing. God is our provision. He is a satisfying Savior. He satisfies. He provides. And David encourages us, taste, taste it, and see for yourself. Taste and see that God is good. It reminds me of some of the other language used in the Psalms. Like in Psalm 63, David exclaims in verse 5, My soul shall be satisfied as with marrow and fatness, and my mouth shall praise thee with joyful lips. David says, when I meditate upon the Lord and when I seek his face, when I utter my prayers to him, it's as though I have just sat down to a hearty meal. My soul is satisfied. I am full. It's like I sat down and, uh, and ate a really rich homemade meal that I enjoy. And my mouth is praising God. I have tasted of his goodness. And so I praise him. The, the goodness of God has satiated me. And so my response is praise. My response is joy. David says, taste this and see that the Lord is good. Find out that when we trust in him, we are blessed. Taste and see that it is a good thing to trust in God. 
It is a good thing to trust in God. Those who trust in God are blessed. You might say, how do I taste God? How do I taste and see that God is good? God seems so intangible sometimes. God God seems so far off sometimes. Sometimes my emotions, my physical sensations, they just aren't pleasurable. I don't feel emotionally satisfied sometimes. I feel physically in pain sometimes. Maybe, maybe, it's, this, maybe it's a chronic illness even, just something like that, where you, we talk about these sensations of taste and sight and feelings, and, and you say, I don't want to hear about that because that area of my life is not a pleasant one. So how can we taste and see and feel and know that God is good when we're in that kind of situation? When our emotions are sending us conflicting messages and when we're up and down, we taste God by trusting God. We trust God even when we don't feel emotionally satisfied, even when we are physically in pain. We taste and see that God is good by trusting him and experiencing experiencing the blessings that come through that trust, David is telling us. He says, Fear the Lord, ye his saints, for there is no want to them that fear him. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they that seek the Lord shall not want any good thing. How, how, how could David put it any stronger? How could he try harder to convince us that it is a good thing to trust God? He's saying, God will give you every good thing you need when you trust in him. Do we really believe that? Do we believe that about God? This should encourage us. When we face a difficulty at work, perhaps, or when we face a difficulty in our family life, or in our marriage, or in our church life, or in our personal life, and we don't know how we're going to overcome it, it's a big challenge, perhaps, Maybe it's been a long-term challenge. Or maybe we're worried about not something that we've been struggling with in the past, but something in the future. Maybe, maybe it's just something we, we see it coming and we're not really sure how we're going to deal with it. Maybe it's a financial obligation or, 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 or a variety of other things could be in our mind right now. And we try to say to ourselves, I've got to somehow prepare myself to take care of this. I've got to focus my energy on this. I want to tackle this. And there's nothing wrong with that. We do have to address the problems we face in life, and we have to apply ourselves to them and try and make plans and strategize and do all of that. God has given us things to steward, and we ought to try and apply wisdom in our stewardship and in our efforts to do well. But in all of that, we must not lose sight of the one who gives us prosperity, the only one who gives prosperity, the only one who gives strength, the only one who gives peace. It's God. David says, when we trust in him and when we walk in his fear, we will not want. We will not lack. It's just like David said in Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. When we're walking under his care, under his shepherding hand, in his fear, in his love, we will not lack. Now, Paul believed this even while he was in prison. You see, this is, this is not something that guarantees tangible prosperity at every point in our life. It's not something that guarantees a steady check each month. It's not something that guarantees comfortable living situation at all times. 
That's not what God is necessary. I mean, that's not to say that God can't give those things as he pleases. And if he, and if he does, praise him. Because all goodness comes from him. All good things come from the Lord. And so we're thankful when he prospers the work of our hands and gives us temporary comforts to enjoy. We're thankful for that. But it's not only talking about that, is it? Because Paul talked about this provision of God even from prison. He wrote to the Philippians from prison. And in, verse, in chapter 4, verse 19, he says, writing from prison, and prisons were not very comfortable places back then especially, he says, but my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. This is a packed verse. We could, we could, we could, uh, we could spend a lot of time here because this is a wonderful thought. God said, Paul says, God will supply all your need according to his riches and glory. This is not just out of his riches. You know, a rich man passing by a poor man and just casting him a few bucks because it doesn't mean anything to him. No, this is according to his riches. This is in, in accordance with the unbounded riches and majesty of God. He, he unloads blessings upon us. He, he heaps benefits into our lives in, a, in such a way that reflects the richness that he has in store for his people. That's what Paul has confidence in, even while he's in prison. So obviously, Paul is not just talking about material needs here. I mean, put this in perspective with verses like Romans 8, 28. God shall, God shall work all things together for good to them that love him, to those who are the called according to his purpose. All things together for good? Really? But what about all these bad things in my life? Well, God's not saying that everything is good. Everything is good. Not everything that happens to you is good in itself. But God is able to use it for good. He's able to bring about good as a result of those difficult circumstances in your life. And what is good anyway? I mean, what is it that would truly be want? What is true want really like? What does it mean to truly lack something? Because that's what David says will not happen if we walk in the fear of God. Well, to truly be in want is to be in want of Christ, is to be in want of a relationship with God, the fountain of life, the fountain of living waters, as Jeremiah would put it. That is true want. That is true poverty. That is true need. That is what God saves us from when we put our trust in him. What is, it, what is good? What is a good thing for us? Well, in Romans 8, after he talks about God working all things together for our good, he says that it is God's predestined purpose for us that we be conformed, that we be conformed to the image of his son. That is the good that God has in store for us. That is what God has purposed to accomplish in our lives, to make us like his son Jesus, to conform us to the image of his son. That is what God is working towards through every single aspect of our circumstances. All things work together towards that good end in the life of a Christian. To be more like their Savior. To have a closer, more vital relationship with their Savior. God is our provision. Paul believed it in prison. Jesus believed it amidst persecution. Jesus didn't have an easy life. Jesus was homeless for at least a period of time during his ministry. And yet he believed that God would provide. Isn't that what he told us in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33? When he said, 
Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. The things you have need of, the things that everybody's worried about, God will provide those things for you as you need them. You won't lack any good thing as you seek first the kingdom, as you walk in the fear of the Lord, in other words, to put it in the language of Psalm 34. You can safely trust in God. We might say, I don't have enough resources to trust in God. I've got too many other things on my mind. I've got too many things on my plate to trust in God. I don't have the mental capacity to do it right now. Nope. Jesus says, seek first the kingdom. These other things you're worried about, God will provide them. It's not to say we don't have to work and and try and, uh, you know, uh, do the things that are necessary for life. But God will work through that. He will work through these things. He will give you the grace sufficient to address the problems of life. He will help you from day to day as you seek first his kingdom, as you walk in his fear. David says, look, I've been there. I did it. God was there for me. I did it in my own failing sort of way, and that's the only way any of us can do it. <laughs> we, none of us are perfect. None of us walk in God's fear like we really should. But David says, look, this poor man cried out unto God and he heard him. So if you're poor like David, you can have confidence that God will hear even you. And that even as you cry out to him and try to walk in his fear through faith, he will provide for you. He will meet your needs. You will not lack any good thing. Even while these cunning hunters, the young lions, these things that are built for hunting that you wouldn't think would ever go hungry, David says, yeah, they might starve, but you won't if you're trusting God. So, now... What are some ways that this meets, meets our day-to-day experience? We talk about fearing the Lord, trying to embrace the love of God and, and obedience to God through faith in Jesus, and that through this we will find God to be trustworthy and good, and we will find light, and we will find life, and we will find provision, and all these good things. Well, what are some practical ways of doing this? Well, David turns our attention to a few right now. He talks about piety, practical piety in light of these promises that God has made and in light of his own experiences that he's described. You see, God is a loving lawgiver. He gives us commands for our own good. And a few of those commands are described here. Some practical ways to walk in the fear of the Lord. David says, come, you children, in verses 11 through 14. Come, you children, hearken unto me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is he that desireth life and loveth many days that he may see good? Keep thy tongue from evil. And thy lips from speaking guile, depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. So what are some practical ways to walk in the fear of the Lord? Be careful how you use your tongue. Be careful what you talk about. That's basically what he's saying here. Don't use your tongue for evil. Don't speak deceitfully. Don't speak divisively. Intentionally avoid evil, David says. Make a point of it. Intentionally avoid evil and intentionally pursue good. Pursue that which is good. And in particular, he says, intentionally pursue peace. He says, he says uh, seek it, pursue it. That word pursue is sometimes translated persecute. Persecute it. Lay hold on it. Run after it. This is something that's practical for our church life. It's something that's practical to keep in mind for our family life. To pursue peace. To, to use our tongue in a way that is edifying, that will build each other up rather than tear each other down. 
that will bring brothers and sisters in Christ together rather than wedge, put wedges between them. You might say, why does David put so much attention on the tongue in the middle of this, dis, uh, ex, this, uh, in the middle of this discourse about trusting God and, and finding God to be a sufficient source of provision and finding life and, and light in God? Why does David suddenly focus so much attention on the use of the tongue? Well, the tongue is a, it's a little thing, but it has big consequences in our lives when we misuse it. James teaches us that, and the Proverbs teach it to us as well. I mean, in uh, Proverbs 15, verse 4, we read, A wholesome tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness therein is a breach in the spirit. It, it breaks our spirit. It crushes us when we use our tongue perversely, when we, when we use it divisively and deceitfully. But if we use it in wholesome ways, the Proverbs tell us that it is a tree of life. It is a tree of life. This is a practical way to take this somewhat abstract-sounding concept of the fear of the Lord and put it into practice. This is one way to fear the Lord today, tonight, to be careful how you use your tongue, to use it intentionally for good rather than deceitfully for evil. This is part of how we are going to be able to magnify the Lord together like David called on us to do at the beginning of the psalm. He says, Oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. Paul talks about how we ought to magnify the Lord with with one mouth and one mind. If we're speaking deceitfully, if we're speaking divisively, that's not going to happen. We're not going to be able to magnify the Lord together if we can't get along with each other, if we're talking bad about each other. There's a lot of reasons why David might bring this up at such a point in the psalm. It's a crucial topic. How we use our tongue. Are we magnifying God through our tongue? Are we blessing him at all times with our mouth? Or are we tearing people down and speaking dishonestly? So that's a... It's a we see piety, practical piety, being discussed here. And lastly, David focuses our attention on promises, the promises of God. You see, God is a committed caretaker. He's going to wrap up our considerations here by focusing in on, on, on a list of promises that God has given us. He has recounted how he trusted in God and found God to be trustworthy. He talks about how we can trust in God and he will be our provision and our protection. He gives us some practical ways of walking in the fear of the Lord that, that bring us into this experience of the, of the blessings of God. So he's going to finish by pointing us forward and giving us some promises to rely on as we go forward in the service of the Lord. He says in verses 15 through 22, The eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous, and his ears are open unto their cry. The face of the Lord is against them that do evil, to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. The righteous cry, and the Lord heareth, and delivereth them out of all their troubles. The Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart, and saith such, and saveth such as be of a contrite spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivereth him out of them all. He keepeth all his bones, not one of them is broken. Evil shall slay the wicked. 
And they that hate the righteous shall be desolate. The Lord redeemeth the soul of his servants, and none of them that trust in him shall be desolate. God is a committed caretaker. He will take care of his people. He will also take care of his enemies. David, David assures us of this. And first, he again assures us that God is attentive to our needs. That's what he's talking about. He says in verse 15, and in verse 15, he says, The eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous. His ears are open unto their cry. Sometimes we, we think that this is not the case, don't we? Sometimes we come to hasty conclusions about God. Sometimes we, we're like David, this, the same man who wrote this psalm. He's, he's suffered in the same ways himself. He says in Psalm 31, 22, I said in my haste, I am cut off from before, the, from before thine eyes. Nevertheless, thou heardest the voice of my supplications when I cried unto thee. So it's a hasty, erroneous conclusion that we come to if we conclude that we are cut off from before the eyes of the Lord. His eyes are open. His eyes are upon the righteous. His ears are open to their cry. So we shouldn't come to these hasty, frustrated conclusions. God's not hearing my prayer. He must not see my situation. That's not true. It's not true. God's eyes are upon you. He, his ears are open to your cry. And you might say, but I'm not righteous. It says he's, his eyes are upon the righteous. That's not me. Well, it's not you in yourself. But who is righteous in the sight of God if not those who are trusting in Christ? From a New Testament perspective, from a New Testament perspective, we know that this is referring to all of us who have faith in Christ because in Christ we are righteous in the sight of God. So through Christ, our great intercessor, the eyes of God are always upon us for the sake of Jesus, who died for us and gave us his perfect righteousness. God's ears are open to our cry. So we can actually cry out to him in hope. We can cry out to him expecting that he'll hear us for the sake of Jesus. God will not turn deaf ear to our prayer. But we, and, and sometimes this seems like a negative thing, but actually it's a comforting truth that while his eyes are upon the righteous, his face is against them that do evil to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. You see, the news of God's justice is actually very good news. Do we realize that? Because evil ought to be punished. I think we would all agree with that, that a crime ought to bear consequences. Well, God is a God of justice. There is no crime committed in his universe that will not be punished, that will not be dealt with. So this is actually good news, that justice will not be neglected by God. He will take care of this. The wicked shall be cut off. His face is against them that do evil. Because sometimes it doesn't look like that, doesn't it? Sometimes we wonder, how long are you going to let this go on, Lord? How long are you going to let your people suffer while your enemies prosper? God, don't you care? Aren't your eyes open to what's going on? Don't you see this? Well, God does see it. And in due time, he will cut off those who hate him. He will not neglect justice forever. And you know, Another way in which that's good news for us is it takes a great burden off of us, doesn't it? We are not in the place of vengeance. We are not in the place of judgment. God is. You see, sometimes when we think God is not acting and we think he doesn't see a situation, we're tempted to intervene ourselves and say, okay, well, I'm going to take care of this. If God's not taking vengeance, I will. But God says no. God says, I will repay. Vengeance is mine, God says. We can trust in that. 
David assures us of this. We don't have to take vengeance into our own hands. We are not the lawgiver. We are not in a position of judgment, for we ourselves are lawbreakers. So we have no standing to judge others in that sense. We leave that to God. So God is a, an attentive God. He's attentive to the needs of his people, and he's attentive to the deeds of his enemies. God is a present help. David says, the righteous cry, the Lord heareth. He delivers us out of our troubles. The Lord is nigh. He is near unto them that are of a broken heart, and saveth such as be of a contrite spirit. It's just like David says in Psalm 46, 1, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Now, on a practical level, I want to ask you this. Do you pray in hope that God is a God who is near, that he is a very present help in trouble? Sometimes it's hard to pray like that, isn't it? I mean, in all honesty, sometimes it's hard to pray like that because like we referenced before, sometimes our emotions, our physical experiences don't agree with our theology. They They send conflicting messages to what the word tells us. And so sometimes it is difficult to pray in hope that God is a God who is near. Sometimes our hearts are broken, and and all we can feel is that brokenness. But we can pray in the hope, in the confidence that God is near to them that are of a broken heart. That God cares, that he keeps our tears in a bottle, as it were, David says. He writes them in his book. He knows what you're going through. He is with you as you pass through the fire. And as you go through those deep and cold waters, God says he goes with you. He is a God who is near. We could uh, talk about these things a lot, actually. I'm tempted to go and talk about other experiences of people, like like Jeremiah. Jeremiah suffered a lot. I want to just read one quick verse about that. I asked him when the sermons are usually over here, and he said it's pretty loose, but I am, we're almost there, don't worry. (laughs) Uh, in Lamentations chapter 3, let me just read a short passage here. In verse 52, Jeremiah says, Mine enemies chased me sore like a bird without cause. They have cut off my life in the dungeon and cast a stone upon me. Waters float over mine head. Then I said, I am cut off. Jeremiah reached that conclusion that David warned us about, thinking you're cut off from the face of the Lord. Jeremiah had a broken heart. He was being persecuted on all sides. His obedience was only making it worse, it seemed. I called upon thy name, O Lord, out of the low dungeon. And what did he find? He says, Thou hast heard my voice. Hide not thine ear at my breathing, at my cry. Thou drewest near in the day that I called upon thee. Thou saidst, Fear not. O Lord, thou hast pleaded the causes of my soul. Thou hast redeemed my life. He will hear us even when all we can do is breathe. David, or Jeremiah says that you heard my breathings. You pleaded the causes of my soul. You drew near and told me not to be afraid. Even as he was cast into the pit of the dungeon and left for dead. God is near the broken in heart. He'll be near you in your brokenness. Do you believe this when you're hurting? Do you believe that God is in control even in the midst of chaos? There's a messianic reference here. David says that many are our afflictions, but the Lord delivers us out of them all. 
He says he keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. John refers to this when he recounts to us the crucifixion of Jesus. You remember, it was the eve of the Passover, and the Jews wanted to make sure that they could go home and prepare for the feast, and so they asked Pilate to take care of these people hanging on these crosses and make sure they were dead. And the, and, the, and the Romans went by and broke the legs of the thieves to the right and left of Jesus. And when they went to Jesus in the middle, they saw that he was already dead, and they didn't break his legs. Instead, they pierced his side with a spear and verified that he was dead. They didn't break his bones. He kept all his bones. Not one of them was broken. Do we believe that God is in control of those sorts of details in the midst of suffering, Jesus was in the midst of a chaotic experience on many levels. He was in the hands of his enemies. He was bearing our sins. The Father was turning his back. His heart was broken in a way that we could never even imagine. And yet God was near. God was so much in control that he could keep the Romans from breaking the legs of Christ as he hung there on the cross. There is not any amount of suffering you experience that has not passed through the hands of God. He will really work all things together for good in your life. He is sovereign over your circumstances. That is helpful to know when we are suffering, when when things seem out of control, when they really are out of our own control. They're not out of God's control. We might not understand why he's allowing things to touch our lives. We might wish that he would stop allowing certain things to touch our lives. Jeremiah wrestled with that all over the place in his writings. He wrestled a lot. But he found renewed hope in God every time he seemed to hit bottom. He came back to the fact that my God is still in control. I can still hope in him. He is still trustworthy. It is still good to trust in God. God will leave the wicked in desolation. He will give them what they thought they wanted. They didn't want him, and so they won't get him. They'll find darkness. They'll find pain. Because that's all there is apart from God. God says, Evil shall slay the wicked, and they that hate the righteous shall be desolate. God will bring them their just deserts. He will not neglect justice, even if it appears that he will for a time. He will not. There is a day of reckoning. God will sit and sit as judge over all the earth. The wicked will be desolate, but the Lord redeems the soul of his servants. None of them that trust in him shall be desolate. There's a contrast here. On the one hand, you have those who do not trust in God and who are described as the wicked. On the other, you have those who do, and they shall not be left desolate. So what's our conclusion tonight? As we read through Psalm 34, what's our conclusion that we can draw from it? It is a good thing to trust in God. It is a good thing to trust in God. It is a worthwhile effort to seek his face. He has given us great and precious promises. And when we take God at his word, he shows himself faithful. Taste his goodness by trusting his word. Taste his goodness by trusting his word. Savor the experience of his mercy. 
David is relishing what God has done in his life. He is boasting of it. He is magnifying God as he trusts in God and blesses him at all times. When you trust in God, we are assured that you will not be left desolate. One last word of reassurance. You might still be clinging to some anxiety regarding this topic. Can I really be sure? Sure, it worked for David. But can I be sure? Well, consider Jesus with me. He put his entire trust in God. He demonstrated his trust through a life and death of perfect obedience. He walked in the fear of the Lord as none of us ever could. He willingly subjected himself even to the torture of the cross. His obedience knew no bound. He was willing to do whatever his father put before him. He willingly subjected himself even to the torture of the cross and the shame of our sin. He endured the wrath of God in our place. Yet even then, as he breathed his last, what did he do? He said, into thine hands I commend my spirit. Was he left in desolation as he did so? Did he trust God in vain? You see, we see Jesus trusting God even as he hung there on the cross bearing our sins. He was still willing to commend his spirit into the hands of his Father. Was it in vain? Was he let down? When he took his Father at his word, what happened? His prayers did not fall on deaf ears. After he completely trusted God and allowed himself to be completely abased under the weight of our sin... God did what? He highly exalted him and gave him a name that's above every name. You see, Jesus Christ reigns as Lord to the glory of the Father in whom he trusted. Jesus was not left desolate. The Father raised him from the grave and exalted him above every other name that is named. You see, if you believe Jesus lives, you believe that God can be trusted, don't you? The fact that Jesus lives is proof positive that God can be trusted. So if you believe in the resurrected Savior, you believe God can be trusted, and you ought to trust in God yourself. It is a good thing to trust in God. So taste of his goodness. Magnify his name. Take him at his word. And thank you for your attention.